I distinctly remember in third grade walking out of the eye doctor's office with these goofy looking glasses on. But even in the midst of that goofiness, being able to see for the first time with clarity, to be able to look and say, ah, actually, trees aren't just one of these big green globs, but they actually have multiple colors and you can see the distinctiveness of the colors, but also that, that there's actually leaves and the clarity of those leaves are incredible to be able to see. And I even remember as a uh, eighth grader, I was playing quarterback and uh, I couldn't see very clearly. I just knew that we were green or white and the other team was not. And so being able to throw and then one day I got contacts and be able to put those contacts in and realize, hey, my receiver is actually number 80 and be able to see that. And so the clarity, it didn't change how well I threw the ball, but I could at least see with clarity who was going to pick it off. And so it was a good thing to be able to see that. And so this morning, as we gather together, what I'm asking for you to do is to join with me as we take our glasses together, our spiritual eyes, and as elders and as leaders within the church, we've been praying and seeking God of God, what is next for us as a congregation from 2020 forward? And one of the things that we've been asking God is, God, give us your eyes, give us your heart. And so we believe that he's given us some clarity over a few things. And um, we're going to share some of those things this morning. And, and here's what I don't know, is it is much bigger than just us, that what we're talking about is going to take all of us to be able to accomplish the things we believe that God has before us. One of the other things I remember as a young man is watching this cartoon called Popeye. Any of y'all remember Popeye? Some of you watched the original ones. We won't say anything about how old you are. But I watched the reruns. And um, interesting fact, the first newspaper to ever have Popeye was the Victoria Advocate in Victoria. So kind of cool. But anyway, sidetrack. So, uh, but Popeye, and one of the things about Popeye was he was this Navy guy. He had tattoos and he had some muscles. But there would get to this point where someone usually Brutus, would begin to mock and make fun of his girl, Olive Oil. And so it would get that, and he had this long suffering and this patience over this. But finally he got to this point of, like, I can, I can stand it no more. And he would literally say, that's all I can stand, I can stand it no more. And somewhere magically in his back pocket he had a can of spinach, right, the willful suspension of disbelief. And so he pulls out this can of spinach and pops it open and just slurps it down. And poof, he doesn't become Papa, but he's like built. He becomes Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he can do anything. And Brutus, who's this big old guy, runs away from Popeye. Listen, this is what I believe, is that when the body of Christ comes together and says, I can stand it no more, and we gather together with a unified vision, that we can conquer even the Brutuses of the world. And so this morning, that's what our challenge is for us to begin to think about with clarity. God, where do you want us to go and how can we gather together? And what we're taking in is not spinach, but it's the Holy Spirit moving us. It's the God-infused power to be able to accomplish things that are beyond us, but only together with him that we can do. We see that within people that this has happened throughout history. Dr. Martin Luther King was one of these people who said, I can stand it no more. He grew up in a day and an age where segregation was the rule and and everyone was separate and actually people were told and taught and consistently put down because of their ethnicity. And so Dr. Martin Luther King, as a young man, got to the point and says, I can stand it no more. And, And one, not just because of what was happening, but also because of his faith, because of the faith that kind of undergirded what he did. And one of the questions of all the different quotes of I can have a dream and all the different things that he said, some great things, the thing that undergirded all of his life and ministry was this question. He said, life's most persistent and urgent question for me is what are you doing for others? In other words, he's requoted the idea of Jesus's who is your neighbor and how well do you love them? 
And so Dr. Martin Luther King asked that question, and he basically said, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or the education level, but it's the content of your character. And so what we see in him of this, I can stand it no more, and we're going to move forward and make some changes in the world. We see that can happen through one man and through a movement, part of Dr. Martin Luther King. Also, we see it in this frail lady named Mother Teresa. Now, Mother Teresa was young once. I know a lot of times we see pictures of Mother Teresa, and she's older, but she was a young woman, and she surrendered to the call of God, and she was a nun, and a nun in a convent, and it was a safe calling for her. She says that, you know what, It was I was called, and this felt safe for me. I was in the convent, and I was doing the regular schedule of that the mother had set for us, and we were doing that. But one day God spoke to my heart and said, what if your life could make a bigger difference than what it currently is? And so she was called to the region of Patna in India, and I've been there. It's a crazy place, and she was able in that place to be able to see poverty at a different level. And I don't know if you've ever seen poverty at the level that Mother Teresa has seen it, but there's something even about the smell. Whenever you get to a place where there's true poverty, even the stench of poverty gets in your nostrils, and it's hard to overcome. And one of the things that Mother Teresa saw was not only poverty, but poverty and death. And that not only did they not have finances, but as people were dying, they didn't even have the dignity of the fact that they believed that they were humans and that they were loved and that they were lovable, not only by anyone else, but especially by God. So her call was to bring dignity to the death of those that were poor, and so that every time that she would serve someone, she was bringing humanity, she was bringing love so that she could transform their hearts, so that as these people died, they knew that someone loved them, that someone loved them because of how much God loved them. And so she brought that dignity. And one of the phrases that she said in that moment as she was walking through the poor of Patna, that this came to her, I was to leave the convent and help the poor while living among them. It was an order. She said that God literally gave her a command and she understood that it was in an order, just as if a general had spoken to her and said, go walk off the side of a mountain, that she was called to a place that was uncomfortable to bring dignity to the dying so that people would understand the truth of God's love for them, even where everyone else would say, you're just trash. That was her calling. She said, I can't stand it anymore. Also, someone maybe we know even maybe a little bit more recent in history is Dr. Billy Graham passed away a couple of years ago. And Dr. Billy Graham was one of these guys that his ministry just kind of carried over all that people just knew about him. And he was able to, to share the gospel literally with millions of people and people were able to hear the gospel. And the kingdom of heaven is different and is more populated, I believe, because of Billy Graham's faithfulness to share the gospel. And one of the things about Billy Graham that he said, he said, I need to be a person of, of character that such no one ever challenge. Everyone can challenge my character, but everyone can see that I'm a man of character. So he early on in his ministry, he set some standards for himself. And so whenever he would go into a hotel, they would already have the television out and all these different things because he didn't want any questions about what's he watching, what's he intaking. He had special um relationships with men and women. And he said, listen, I can't ever meet alone with a woman again. He's setting himself up. He said, listen, I don't want anyone to question that my call is to preach the gospel and no one to be able to undercut what I do because I lack character and be able to question that. Obviously, scripture was important to Billy Graham, and that was the main thing that undergirded him. But he said he received this call from God and spoken to him through one of his mentors, and it was this, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And he said, that was the call of God in my life. If there's no reserves, there's no retreat, there's no regrets, that when I'm on my deathbed, I can look back and say, this is what I'm called to do. 
no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What stirs up holy discontent in you? For Martin Luther King, it was he saw segregation. For Mother Teresa, she saw the indignity of the poverty of those that were dying. For Billy Graham, he saw that there were those that needed to hear the simple truth that Jesus loves them and that this is the gospel message. What stirs up holy discontent in your heart? What we've been talking about as leadership here over the last few years is what stirs up within us as we look at our county and with our city and the areas around. What is it that God's leading us to do and and that there's things that we see that we can't stand anymore to continue to let happen? Think about a couple of other stories from the Bible. One is the story of Moses. If you've been around church for a little bit, you've heard the story of Moses. Moses is a young man. There was an edict issued, and all the young men of the world of of, that, of Egypt were supposed to be taken. And so Moses' mother couldn't stand losing her son, so she put him in a wicker basket and put him down in the river. And by coincidence, one of Pharaoh's daughters saw Moses and brought him in as one of her own, and she raised him in the home of the Pharaoh, which meant he received the best education. He received the best of everything. And so he was raised up, protected, but also by coincidence, Moses' mother was his nurse nursemaid. And so she was there along with the great education that he was receiving. He was also receiving an education, a spiritual education. And he understood that he was a child of God, that he was a child of Yahweh and what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be Hebrew. And so that even though he was receiving this wonderful education in the house of Pharaoh, he was also, by coincidence, his mother was there and showing him the greater picture of his story in the history of God. And so one day there came a point where he was a young man and he was walking out amongst his people. And here's what it tells us in Exodus chapter 2, 11. When most, many years later, Moses had grown up and he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during this visit, he saw an Egyptian being beating one of his own fellow Hebrews. And so in this moment, this holy discontent raised up with inside him because he's like, this is my people. These are my people. And look what is happening to them. And I don't know if you've ever been in a fight or if you've ever seen a fight or heard a fight. But when flesh hits flesh, it's nasty. There's a distinct sound. There's a distinctness about that. So you can imagine in this moment that Moses is walking by and he's hearing these sounds and he's, this holy discontent rises up with inside of him. And he immediately responds. If you continue to read the story, he immediately responds and actually kills the Egyptian and hides him and then runs away because the story gets out. And so as he's running from God for years, eventually God shows up in a miraculous story and shows up in this bush that continues to burn. At the, it's a holy place. And Moses and God have this encounter, and God says, you remember that holy discontent, that moment back long ago whenever you killed that Egyptian and what inside of you rose up, this bubbling up inside of you, don't treat my people this way. I'm coming to you with that same call, and I'm calling you, Moses, out of that holy discontent to lead my people to the promised land. And even though he questioned it for a little bit, he understood that God had burdened him and had raised up and bubbled with him the ability and the opportunity and the call to lead God's people to the promised land. Also, there's another young man by the name of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a young man that was in the court of the Babylonian king at the time. And the reason that he was there was because Jerusalem had fallen. And the young people within the court of the king of Jerusalem had been taken and they were brought into the court of the Babylonian king. And Nehemiah had, again, been raised with a great education and all these things, but he'd also had people around him that were in the Hebrew faith. And so they had these wonderful opportunities together to learn together and to grow together in the faith. And Nehemiah had the unenviable job of being the cupbearer of the king. 
Now, why I say uninvitable, one, because he had, he had great opportunities there, but also if the king was going to eat or drink something and die from it, guess who was going to go first? Nehemiah. So he was eating, drinking good stuff, but every time that he drank and ate from the king's cup and from the king's table, he was the one to taste it, and everybody would wait around for a little bit, and if Nehemiah is left standing, then they're like, let's dig in. It's like the dinner bell rings if Nehemiah stays awake and alive for 30 minutes. And so that's not an enviable job, but... It's also a place of trust, because you can imagine that the king trusts that every time Nehemiah takes a drink or takes a bite, that he's truly ingesting, that he's giving his life for the king's life. And so he had the ear of the king. And there became a time where some of his friends had gone to Jerusalem and came back through Babylon, and Nehemiah asked the question, hey, how are things going in Jerusalem? And his friends reported back to him and said, listen, Jerusalem is in ruins. The, the city walls are destroyed. The city gate is gone. The businesses in town are ruined. There's just, it's just a pitiful place. It's a pitiful sight. It's, it's not what it used to be. And so that being his hometown, just this holy discontent began to bubble up with inside of him. And so he got up the courage to go to the king and ask for vacation. I don't know if you know, but you don't ask kings for vacation. And Nehemiah got up the guts to be able to do this because of the holy discontent over the city of Jerusalem. And he went to the king and said, I feel that God is calling me, my God, Yahweh, is calling me to go back and to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. As soon as that's done, I'll come back. But, but this is the calling that I've got on my life, I feel, and if you would allow me to go do this. And so not only did the king give him favor to do that, but the king gave him all of the resources to be able to rebuild. And so Nehemiah shows up at Jerusalem a little bit later, and he's walking around the city, and he doesn't even tell anybody even why he's there yet. But he walks around the city, he walks through and around, and he kind of gets a glimpse. And, and while he's even doing that, there's people hurling insults and saying, Jerusalem is a loser city, there's only such and such people that live there, and you'll never be what you once were, and all these different things. And so even through all of that, the people of the city's demeanor had radically changed. And so as Nehemiah's walking around, God just confirms for him, and he confirms that holy discontent, and says, this is your job, this is your call for this season to bring back the glory of God to the city of Jerusalem and to this place where we once gathered to worship and people would hear and know about Yahweh. This is your call. And if you continue to read the story of Nehemiah, it's a short book. Within shorter amount of time than they estimated, they were together able to rebuild the wall and bring back the glory of God to the city. Even with the midst of insults, even in the midst of of enemies and everything else going on because they gather together and people who weren't necessarily gifted to rebuild walls, to rebuild gates, to do the things that they were doing, gathered together and said, for this season, I will do what's necessary for the glory of God. God-sized, holy discontent leads to God-sized dreams. Over the next five years, as an elder board and as a team, we want to tell you kind of where we're headed as a congregation. The first thing is this, is a desire to change our name from Second Baptist Church to Cross Point Community Church. To change our name from Second Baptist Church to Cross Point Community Church. Why? Several reasons. Number one, we're about the cross. Everything that we're about is we're pointing people to the cross, and that's our goal, that's our thing, that's what we're pointing people to, and that's what we want to be about. The other part is that we're a community. That as we've grown over the last few years is that, yes, we have Baptist roots and we stand on our Baptist shoulders and the good things about that. We'll talk about that in a second. But as a community, people are coming here from all over the community 
that have no idea what it means to be Baptists and are drawn maybe in spite of the fact that we're Baptists to the fact that Jesus is doing God something, doing something in our midst. And so that we'd be able to, to, rec- to be more of who we are as a church, as a church that's pointing people to Jesus, that's about the community and making things happen. And our, our mantra will be, our phrase will be, our mission for us is Cross Point Community Church is here to point people to Jesus. It doesn't get any more simple than that. And that's why we're here. That's what we do. Now, listen, we're still going to have our Baptist roots. We're still going to continue to give the things about being Baptist. And I'm Southern Fried Baptist, okay? And so what that means is this, is it means is that the Scripture is number one. We're sola scriptura. We're about the Scripture. We do life. We do the things that we do because of Scripture. And that is our founding document. That's where we go to and we ask the questions. It also means that we're missional that we are tied to, if the Bible doesn't say we can't do it, we're going to do it to reach one person for Christ. And so that that's going to be the things. And so that's the heritage that we stand on, and we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to give funds to Baptist things as far as the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. We have the greatest mission organization in the world, and we're not going to step away from that. If anything, we're going to lean into that. But it also gives us the opportunity to continue to our partnerships with Vision Puerto Rico, who happen to be Baptist guys, just nobody knows it. Uh, when we go to Burma and Myanmar here in a few months, one of my, one of my mentors and professors at Golden Gate Seminary um, is a church planter all over the world, and we're going to join him in planting churches and opening orphanages and opening churches and doing surgeries. We're going to all over Southeast Asia. So it opens up opportunities for us to be able to do some things that maybe we weren't able to do before. But ultimately, here's this. Crosspoint Community Church, our vision is for the next 10 years is to share the gospel, to share the good news with over 50,000 people. So that's 30,000 people live in our community, our Fayette County. That means over the next 10 years, we are committing that we're going to have one-on-one conversations with people throughout the community to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the surrounding counties as well. So it's an exciting thing, but listen, it's not going to be just Chris. It's not just a live stream on Sunday morning. It's all of us where we're at being available and vulnerable and honest about what Jesus has done in our life and sharing our stories wherever we go and what we're about. How will we do this? We're going to be a church of the community and for the community. We want people to know that we're for them. We're not against things. We're for things. We're going to be impacting the spiritual climate of this county with authentic life-on-life relationships, that we're going to be out and about life and just say, hey, listen, we are a place where no perfect people are allowed because we're not perfect. We've never arrived. We're just trying to follow Jesus the best we can, and we want you to, to know about the Jesus that we know and join us on that journey. We're going to be a safe place for families to engage with Jesus and Jesus followers. That we're going to be one church in multiple locations. That we have people coming from Columbus and Schulenburg and Smithville and Weimar, all these different places. And so we're going to be about putting places and putting that. And it would be really awkward to have Second Baptist Church Weimar, Second Baptist Church Schulenburg. And so as those things happen, we believe God's leading in those different directions. And so to be able to say, hey, there's a, there's a, a church family called Crosspoint in those communities as well. We're also, we're going to have a student movement that impacts our region. Listen, the students of today, they are the church of today. They're not the church of tomorrow. That if we do not capture their hearts and their minds and their souls with the gospel message today, then we won't have tomorrow. 
We can look at the stats. I can show you the stats, and it shows us consistently the fact that as a church we have failed our children and we have failed young adults, not with indoctrination but with honest truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that for us, that there's many times in the church world, there's a disconnect between our church life and our home life. And so one of the things that we're going to be continually talk about is in your home, be honest about your struggles with your faith and that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but doubt drives us deeper into our faith. And that there are things that we don't fully understand and comprehend on this side of heaven, and that's okay because my faith in Jesus, not in my understanding of everything I don't understand, the simplicity of the gospel. So we'll have a student movement that impacts the region. That we'll also have the most dynamic kids ministry around. That kids will say, mom and dad, that they will drag you out of the house to get here on Sunday mornings. That they'll be here at 8 and they'll deliver the donuts because they want to be here to be with the adults that they've got. What are the steps that we're going to take to accomplish this? The first one is this, is we're looking for, we've been actively thinking about and talking about finding a center, a place, a building that can become a community center for students. That there is not a safe place in our area for students to go and to do life. So the place that can, we can offer movies, we can offer dances, we can offer concerts, we can offer adults that are there, the cafe, all this mentoring and tutoring and all this different stuff, a place that they can go that's life-giving to them and they know that there are adults there that care for them. Instead of where we go places and kids scatter because they know that they're not supposed to be there, that they will find a place that kids can know, students can know this community, this church is for them. That we're going to renovate our current facility that we have here to be a kid's zone. Imagine with me slides and swings and bouncy houses and all of this that where kids are literally knocking down the doors to say, I'm going to be here. And that we'll do that, not because for the fun facility, but so that again, opportunity for kids to come in and say, I've had fun. That's the first question as parents we ask. Did you have fun? Yes. The second question is, what did you learn? And that they would say, I had fun and I learned about Jesus. I learned about Moses. I learned about all these things that our children would be life transformed at their five, six, seven, eight. And they carry that on into youth and, and that we would see a spiritual impact is radically changed because of our ability to count the costs and say kids and students are worth it. That will begin a ministry for LaGrange preschoolers that with our, our renovated facility, we'll be able to do some things that we can't do now that we'll build a new multi-purpose facility that we'll use for worship and banquets and community center events and all that, that worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings, that worship can happen on Tuesday night when we gather first responders together to say thank you to them. Or on a Thursday night when we have teachers come in and we have a dinner for them and give them school supplies, that worship isn't confined to just this. Worship is us out and about living like Jesus. And so that, to be able to use a facility that's 24-7, and, and one of our heartbeats as elders is that, that not to do these things, just to have these new buildings and to let them sit open like a lot of places are, but that they are being used and that there's a waiting list to be able to use the facilities that God has provided for us because we've got first-class facilities and people are here serving and life change happens in our facilities. We're going to do first-class, Holy Spirit-led, Jesus-centered worship services. We're going to be about life groups. So we're going to make changes to our schedule and ministries. And we're going to look at different things that we're going to slice up because we believe that life groups 
provides us an opportunity for true life change. That in those places where we get vulnerable with one another, we remove our mask and we remove the costumes of everything's okay. And we have a couple people that we entrust with our life and authentic life change. That transformation can happen in those places. That you, God is able to do some things with a heart and with a mind that's vulnerable with other believers. And so life groups is a huge part of that. We're going to limit our calendar and activities. We're going to be joining in what the community already does and making what the community already does better, not recreating the will and doing our own thing. And so we're going to continue to, to dump in to trick-or-treat on the square at Smeckin' Fest, at movie nights and all that, at the wine stroll, that we're going to be at places in the community because we are of the community. We're not going to separate ourselves from it. We're going to get involved even more in it. So we may wear some shirts that say for LaGrange, love does, or whatever, to, to help people know that who we are. But it's all about us saying, hey, listen, we're in the community, we're for the community, and we love you. Holy discontent leads to God-sized dreams. How are you going to get involved? How are you going to be a part of Crosspoint pointing people to Jesus? How are you going to show our Crosspoint neighbors that we're for them? John 3.16 is the verse that you're going to hear a lot. John 3.16, you know so well. It says, For God so loved that he gave. Love is an action verb. It's not something that just sits and takes in, but it love does. And so that's what you're going to hear from us. We're going to talk a lot about love does and that we're for. That we're for things and we're going to be moving and that we gather here on a Sunday to worship, to celebrate what God's done in our life, to maybe re- rethink some of the things of our life this week. So as we open up God's Word, as we sing songs, it reminds us of where we reached and had a great time and maybe where we failed, but we gather together as a family and we celebrate who God is in our lives and it centrifuges us out to go be the missionaries, to go be students, to go be teachers, to go be first responders, to go be what we are throughout the week as missionaries of here, to point people to Jesus. Listen, I don't want to do business as usual. I know how old I am. My time's short. All of our time is pretty short. When you, when you put us in the scheme of history, our time to make a difference in the world is really, really short. And so at that moment when I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to look back and go, man, just what if? What if I had done? I want to have Billy Graham's deal of no retreat, no regrets. Just moving forward and counting the cost. Because here's what I know. That if we step forward and do even some of these things, it will leave a wake of influence that will impact 50,000, 100,000 people over the next few years. And this is what it means. If we're able to have this power to be able to do this together as a community and reach out, this is what the influence will do. This is how simple. I want to get it so simple for you this. Less children will be abused. Less kids will take their own lives. Less kids will be hungry and homeless. Less teenagers will settle for the crap that they settle for. Marriages will thrive, not just survive. A community will have a greater influence when it will have a greater cause than a hurricane. That red, yellow, black, brown, turquoise, and everything in between and outside will know that they have a safe place, that God loves them, and they can experience the love of God. And we can worship together that the thing that separates us is whether we know Jesus or do not. And that if they don't yet, that there's not us and them, it's us on a journey to point people to Jesus. 
that we don't care about this or that or all these other things. We're a divided nation, and we need to be as followers of Jesus to set the example that the thing that draws us together is our faith and our call and our cause is Jesus Christ, and that is the cross. And so all this other stuff is just surrounding things and slough it off, and let's say we're about the business of Jesus Christ, and we don't care about all this other stuff because one child, If their parent knows Jesus, that means that they might quit drinking to the point that they abuse them. That they might find a job so that they can feed their children. See, this is the part that we forget, that the gospel changes at the basic levels. The lies that you can look at denominations throughout history in America and that the reason that denominations have grown in wealth is not because of some special education or influence. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed them. And as we get wealthier, we forget the basicness of the cross. And so I'm telling you, let's just strip all that stuff away. You're not going to be able to take the five TVs to heaven with you. So can we give up one? for a facility where students might hear the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Will you join me in this at Cross Point Community Church? We're going to be about pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, you've given us the most important mission in the world, and that is to share Jesus. May we do it with no reserve, no regrets, no retreat. Life is short. May we leave a wake of influence. We love you. May we show it by the way we love our neighbors. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.